Coming up, a conversation with historian Lauren Turek on her new book on the origins of evangelical human rights activism and the ways it shaped American diplomacy. Right after the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through conversations with thinkers, scholars, and leaders, we explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Welcome back to the podcast. We've had a consistent sub-theme in our first 16 episodes to speak to historians. Now, admittedly, that's in part because I, your humble host, am a historian, but there's a bigger reason too. At Upper House, we routinely seek the insights of historians because of the way understanding the past helps us understand our present. I'm delighted to introduce to you in this episode to Dr. Lauren Turek, an associate professor of history at Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas. Lauren earned her PhD at the University of Virginia and has published widely in academic journals on U.S. foreign relations and the intersection of religion and politics. The main topic of our conversation today is her book from 2020 with Cornell University Press, titled To Bring the Good News to All Nations, Evangelical Influence on Human Rights and U.S. Foreign Relations. The book's been widely and positively reviewed, and in the show notes, I'll link to a roundtable review that I was privileged enough to contribute to as well. Lauren's book is a model of historical scholarship. It's deeply researched and well-conceptualized. It has important contributions to make to our understanding of the sometimes hard-to-define term evangelical and how evangelicals have asserted themselves politically in recent decades. Of course, Lauren's book is a work of history, so we don't spend a ton of time on recent developments, but we instead focus on the pivotal decades of the 1970s and the 1980s, when there was a rising tide of concern across many sectors of society, including evangelicals, for human rights. As Lauren explains, evangelicals invoked human rights— like these many other groups, but defined it on their own terms, which gave their activism a unique trajectory and got them entangled in some problematic situations as well. I'll also talk to Lauren about her origins as a historian and how she hopes her research contributes to uh, broader conversations that Christians and non-Christians are having today. So without further ado, here's an Upwards conversation with Lauren Turek. So we'll just start with uh, a bit about you and let our audience sort of get to know you uh, as a person. So start by talking about your history with the study of history and how you got interested in becoming a historian. So for me, a lot of my interest in history actually came from my, my childhood and my upraising, which probably is not going to be unfamiliar to people. When I was young, we often took vacations that had some sort of historical theme. We would go to um, historic Deerfield or some other site with a lot of museums. My family has always loved going to historic house museums, so I was very much steeped in it. And I'm from New England, so there's plenty of old history there to go see. 
my mother was also an antique dealer when I was young. So we were always engaging with material culture and old items. So I just have a real love for both learning about history, particularly at, at public history sites, and it just engaging with the material of the past. Um, when I was in high school, I took a really unusual elective that was uh, called the archaeology uh, sort of of my town. I, I grew up in, in a small town in Connecticut. It was the archaeology of my town, but it wasn't really an archaeology class because one of the things that we got to do was to go to the town archives and look at the original land records for a town that was founded in very, very early, this late 1600s. And it blew my mind that I got to sit in this building and actually handle these documents from so long ago. It was the most exciting prospect to me. It was, I couldn't believe they were letting me do it. And I think I was the only person in the class who was that excited about it, but I just, it really entranced me. And so when I got to college, I, I majored in history. I really enjoyed doing the work where you get to really work with those primary sources, work with those original documents from the time. I could think of nothing more interesting than sitting in an archive or at the microfilm machine and just looking at what, you know, this is somebody's diary that I'm reading all these years later. I mean, it maybe sounds a little voyeuristic, but I just, I loved it. And I, I, I felt like a detective putting pieces together to tell a story, to write my research papers. And I initially thought that what I would like to do in terms of a career was actually go into museum work so that I could share my passion for history and historical objects and historical documents with a public audience. And so after I finished my undergraduate work, I went on and got a degree in museum studies at New York University. And then I spent several years working at a company that designed museum exhibits for museums all over the world. And so I got to do a lot of this work, not just for historical museums, but for all types of museums where we're just sharing knowledge. But I really missed doing my own research and doing my own exploration on topics that I was drawn to. And I am somebody who's also quite interested in the history of US foreign policy. And at the time, there weren't really museums that were focused on that in particular. So I decided I would go on to graduate school to pursue a PhD in history where I could really study the history of U.S. foreign policy. And uh, that is what I did. So I got to spend lots of time in the archives working with documents and thinking through their, their broader meaning and then, you know, turning them into pieces published for both public and academic audiences. Is there a reason you were gra gravitated toward U.S. foreign relations? Like, was that always just sort of an aspect that interested you? Was there a and was it 9-11? I don't know. No, you know, I think I was just always really interested in U.S. foreign policy. I, I have a sort of hilarious and, and very sort of typical memory of myself um, in, in high school, in a high school history class, giving a very impassioned uh, sort of commentary on the WTO and world trade um, at a time when, you know, I don't think most of my classmates cared one way or the other what was happening in terms of, of global policy <laughs> to do with the economy. So I was just always very interested in U.S. engagements abroad and what was happening. I was a very, very much this sort of student activist type, really, really concerned about tragedies occurring, wars occurring abroad, what the U.S. was was up to um, in general. And so it seemed like a natural continuation, a, an opportunity to actually study the topic in depth in a mature way. Everything is very you know, hot when you're a high school student or a college student. By the time you get to graduate school, you you had a little bit of experience with the way the world works and you can kind of focus in in a, in a more, I think, pragmatic way on the way that policy gets made and what the, the way that policymakers are weighing the options that they have on the table. 
So it was just, it was a sort of natural progression for me to, to get into that. Yeah, very interesting. So um, as we'll get to in a minute, you study a lot of topics related to religion and U.S. foreign relations. So I know listeners would be just interested. Did you have any religious aspect to your upbringing and and how did you come to be interested in the topic of religion? Sure. So my my family was Catholic, so I was raised uh, Catholic in uh, in New England. I'm not religious. I I'm uh, an agnostic atheist, but you know, I certainly did have that kind of Catholic upbringing and my parents are very devout. My whole family was it just didn't resonate with me personally, but you know, I'm I'm somebody who very much you know, is concerned and, and cares about religious liberty for people so people can practice their faith freely. And so people who are not religious can also live their lives and their beliefs the way that they choose to. Um, so I, I did not have my personally a strong sort of religious orientation. But when I got to graduate school and I was thinking through potential topics to research, I started to do some projects on, again, a foreign policy historian. I was very interested in the 1970s as a decade, and I started to research the policies of President Richard Nixon. And one of his big foreign policies was a policy known as detente, which is his efforts to relax the tensions with the Soviet Union that had existed since the start of the Cold War in the late 1940s. And what I was mostly interested in was the opposition that had emerged around that policy that he developed. And I was not surprised to see opposition from, you know, certain scientists or certain um, political groups, but I was, uh, and I certainly wasn't surprised to see resistance uh, to those policies from Jewish groups because they were very worried about the human rights abuses that were happening in the Soviet Union against Jewish people there. But I was very surprised to see a lot of opposition to Nixon's policies from evangelical Christians, because it was not what I had uh, necessarily heard about evangelical Christians in terms of their political engagement. I was certainly familiar with really hot button social issues like, uh, you know, abortion and prayer in school and all the things we think of. And here they are mobilizing around this foreign policy issue. And I said, oh, this is interesting and unexpected. Maybe this will have the makings for a good dissertation project. And I think indeed it did. Uh, because the more that I probed their um, engagement in politics and foreign policy, the more I realized that it was a much more complex and interesting story than, than what I had initially thought. And so as I started to do that work for the master's thesis, I also began to do a closer study of the history of religion in American politics. I took some graduate classes in that. I also took a graduate class in the history of Pentecostalism, which was, again, as somebody who was raised Catholic, very uh, foreign to me. Uh, you know, I went to some Pentecostal services at both uh, black and white churches. I went to one like seeker friendly white church, but I also went to the local um, black Pentecostal church. And it was truly a different experience. Uh, both of those churches truly different from any, you know, anything I'd experienced going to Catholic mass. It was wildly different, um, much more exuberant, much more um, more rock music, first of all. I mean, it was just really, it was something else. Um, and so I just found it fascinating. And I learned about the proliferation of Pentecostalism throughout the entire world in the 20th century. And it just really struck me as something important that foreign policy historians had not been paying attention to. And yet, it seemed to have so much potential, you know, power to explain the reason for why certain certain countries have changed the way that they have since, say, the 1960s, maybe, right? Like, 
changes in, in African countries or changes in South Asian countries. I was really excited to, to try to blend those political interests with this global story of religious change. And I was really amped up by it. And my graduate advisor was very confused by this, um, but he got he got on board. He got on board. Yeah. And, and before we jump into the book, which we'll get to here in a minute, you've talked about sort of the different types of history that you've done, public history, history of U.S. foreign relations, religious history. If someone if some were to just come up to you and ask you sort of what what are you, what, what, what type of historian are you? How would you prioritize those or, or what, how would you frame your own work? Yeah, I always tell people that I see myself as a diplomatic historian first or a foreign policy historian first, because when I think about the stories that I'm most interested in telling, I, I always come back to the question of what is the role of the United States in the world? How has the United States functioned in terms of its relationships, not just with other countries, but the way that its uh, political culture and just culture in general, how has it shaped other countries and how have other countries shaped and influenced U.S. politics. So primarily foreign policy historian, but someone who's really interested in the intersections with domestic politics and domestic political culture. I want to think about the ways that interest groups, for example, can influence our relations abroad. And religious groups then become a really key piece of that story because in the United States, religion really matters. It does shape our politics. It shapes the conversations we have about politics. And I think it also, in important ways, shapes the way that we interact with other states at a state-to-state -state level. And it's not just missionaries going out, although that is a huge piece of the story, and it's a huge piece of my book. It's also people who are people of faith who have really strong feelings about uh, our posture in the world or our values and the way that the United States projects those values. And they, when they come together in interest groups, can have a, a real influence on the direction that the country takes in terms of its foreign policy. Um, and then public history is more um, about my teaching approach and my, my interest in addressing and sort of sharing history with the public, but also bringing the public in to, to tell their stories. So when I when I'm teaching, I like to I teach a class in public history. I like to teach students how to how to do that work, how to work in a museum, how to think about how they can connect people with history, because in, in so many cases, it's the local community that knows the most about their own history. And so it's important that they have a role in preserving that history and sharing it with others and future generations. It strikes me that, you know, we, we share a lot of the same sort of uh, academic interests, at least on the foreign relations and religion overlap. It's a sign of how diverse uh, the conversation is where um, I would sort of flip those and talk about myself as a religious historian who's also interested in, in foreign policy. And it's interesting how there's so much overlap there in the people we talk about, but there's also a lot of difference in even how to conceptualize um, the, the stories that we tell or even the sort of questions that we come to come to the sources with. And we'll get a, a little into that at the end of our conversation where um, I want to hear your thoughts sort of on the broader, uh, what we call the religious turn in, in some of the scholarship. Uh, it's great that we're not all coming at it uh, from the same direction, I guess. It makes for really dynamic uh, reading. We, we get all, we've had all these great books recently about religion and foreign policy, and they're, they're all coming from different angles. I, I love it. It's super exciting. Yeah, well, and then getting to your book. So to bring the good news to all nations evangelical influence on human rights and U.S. foreign relations. And this came out with Cornell uh, Press last year. 
uh, getting uh, very good reviews. I was pr privileged enough to uh, be on a roundtable to review it as well. So there's two key concepts in the title there that are at the heart of the book, I'd say, evangelical and human rights. Um, so could you give us a sense first of how you're defining evangelical in this book? This was a big question, right? Because again, especially since I'm coming to it, not as somebody who had a religious studies background or even necessarily a, a whole lot of firsthand knowledge about evangelicalism, I had to think really hard about how am I going to define this so that it will resonate and make sense for this particular story that I'm telling, but also for an audience uh, which is probably going to be made up of both religious studies and religious history folks and foreign policy people. I didn't want to get too bogged down in the debate because in religious studies, there's a huge debate about, well, what is an evangelical? And it's, uh, it gets very complicated. And I, so I wanted to think about how I could define the group of people that I was talking about in a way that would be recognizable to the people themselves if I were to go back in time and sort of say, hey, you know, do you identify this way? But that also was not so capacious as to be meaningless, right? Because that's the other possibility. You can be too narrow that it makes no sense or too broad, and then it's also a problem. So because my book really focuses on the emergence of a foreign policy lobby or a group of of these evangelical Christians who had particular goals and objectives for U.S. foreign relations that were influenced in part by their missionary work and what they were seeing happening abroad and what they wanted to see happen abroad, it was important for me to think about them in terms of their beliefs and their practices. So I read a whole bunch of the definitions that are out there about evangelicals. I read that the, there's the, you know, the Bevington quadrilateral, there's all of these different definitions. But there was a sociologist of religion named Mark Shibley, whose definition I found very clear and very convincing and helpful. And he sort of defined them as um, Christians who'd had a born again experience. So they'd had, they have this personal relationship with Jesus. They accept the authority of the Bible, right? So they're, you know, not necessarily that the Bible's inerrant or anything like that, but that the Bible is sort of guiding them in their daily life. And most importantly, they were committed to spreading the gospel. So uh, beliefs and practices, and it's that latter practice that was really important because in a story or the history of people going out into the world to do missionary work and then bringing that information home to shape foreign policy, the going out in the world to do missionary work really matters. That's how you're engaging with this broader, broader culture. So that definition was specific enough that I could look at both the way that beliefs were shaping people's foreign policy opinion, as well as their actions shaping their understanding of the world around them, and then how those two pieces came together to lead them to actually mobilize on particular issues of importance in foreign policy. It was broad enough for me to, to talk about denominational groups like the Southern Baptists, but also to talk about Pentecostals, who I, as I mentioned, was, had become very interested in, um, and to talk about non-denominational groups as well, as well as, you know, some of these bigger parachurch organizations that, again, aren't specific, you know, specific denominations, but identify themselves broadly as evangelical. Right. So, and there we're talking about like the National Association of Evangelicals or the yeah. National Religious Broadcasters Association, which would um, maybe not have a, a particular um, denominational identity themselves, but are sort of a gathering place for different type of evangelicals. You know, even some folks who we might think of as being in more mainline churches like the Methodists, but who have an evangelical orientation themselves. 
Yeah. So the other big key term is human rights. And that, that is throughout the book. That's sort of a, a key concern of yours. How are you thinking about human rights in this book? This is where things got very interesting to me, because often when we hear the term human rights, one of the things we we maybe think of might be the work that the United Nations started to do in the 1940s through the Universal Declaration on Human Rights to start to define what human rights were, right, and codify them and then start to try to find ways in international law to enforce those rights, to, to suggest to states how they should be handling their citizens and, and what sorts of rights there should be. And if you read the Universal Declaration on Human Rights, it's very broad. There are a lot of different elements that constitute rights. It's, of course, human dignity and bodily integrity, right? Your right to exist the way that you want to, the right to religion. But it's also things like a, a right, essentially a right to, to vote and choose your government. So it's quite broad. And much of that document is aspirational. Right? It took a very long time for the rights that were enumerated in that document to in any way come to the fore in international law. Some of them still really aren't. Some of them really are still quite aspirational. And the reality is that there are cultures throughout the world that do not share the same perspective of what rights are. And indeed, rights are contested, and they have been contested. The very idea of human rights have been contested for a very long time. A lot of the excitement around the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, it faded a little bit in the 1950s and 60s. And there was this resurgence of excitement and interest about human rights in the 1970s. And so the book really revolves around that period. But one of the things that I argue and that I found interesting was that um, conservative political Politically conservative groups, including politically conservative evangelicals, had a vision for human rights that was different than the vision that political liberals or more liberal Christians had. And their view of human rights was one that took the right to religion, freedom of religion, as the core right, the core human right. Because from their perspective, if you didn't have a freedom of conscience or a freedom to believe, and most importantly, to practice your beliefs as you wanted, then no other right really mattered because how could you have any other rights without the freedom of conscience? The idea that they developed. Now, liberal human rights groups are saying, well, you need you need right from not, not to be tortured or not to be killed, right? Those are also really important. Um, and they had other rights that they were concerned about too, economic and social rights. But so there's a difference of opinion there about which rights are primary and most important. And so what I started to see was that for evangelicals articulating this idea that religious freedom is the core human right, that sets in motion a set of foreign policy priorities for them from the United States. If promoting religious freedom is the key thing, that is going to suggest a certain set of priorities for them to organize around. And that comes from this idea that if you, you know, if your practice and your belief is that you want to spread the gospel to everyone on earth, but there are parts of the, the earth that are closed to evangelism, well, then you have a real problem in terms of achieving your, your broader objectives. And if based on that belief, if your belief is that by spreading the gospel, you're offering people the opportunity to be saved um, and to have ultimate freedom through their salvation, then countries that don't allow you to share that word are really taking something away from their people. And you, can, and you can see then how that becomes a human rights issue for this particular group of, of Christians. So the, the evangelical constituency who's interested in this starts articulating that concern about access to, to missions, uh, spaces, and others in this language of human rights, which is sort of a really interesting 
development, I guess. And it's also a hard one as a historian, right? Because because everyone's using this term human rights, but they're not necessarily meaning the precise same thing. In my own work, I remember, and there's been a lot done on this term too, but the term Judeo-Christianity, which is a very popular term among a bunch of different Americans, particularly at, right after World War II, same period as human rights is becoming a term. Um, everyone's invoking that, that phrase, Judeo-Christian civilization or tradition or Judeo-Christianity, but they're often meaning uh, you know, different things by it. Some of them have a sort of heavy theological definition to that. Some of them have a heavy moral definition to that. And so they can actually almost be uh, mutually exclusive definitions of the same term. A hundred percent, yeah. yeah. They're, they're, these are malleable terms, and they can become really politically potent. So, I mean, do you want to be in Congress arguing against human rights? Goodness gracious, no, but human rights means really different things to different political leaders. It can become a, a tool and a really instrumental phrase to achieve very different policy ends. And I don't, I don't mean that in a cynical way necessarily, though it certainly could be, but it is clearly a very powerful phrase. Right. And, and these, these phrases themselves or these terms come out of political context, right? They don't just sort of appear. They're, they come on the scene for a certain reason at a certain time. And so it's already a non-neutral term, you know, right, right when it's on, on the scene. Absolutely. So just get a little deeper into what evangelicals might mean by human rights. So when, when you're looking at evangelicals invoking this term, are they citing certain Bible verses, certain theological concepts to say sort of this is what we mean by uh, human rights. Yes. Uh, and so to find this, a lot of what I was looking at was, of course, of course, I'm going through letters that missionaries are writing home to their home, uh, either to their families or to their churches at home. I'm looking at letters that evangelicals are writing to their political leaders, to their representatives. I'm looking at publications that they're, you know, Christianity Today and other magazines, but also literal newsletters from some of these um churches. And I'm looking for that language, that particular set of phrase. How are they describing human rights? How are they describing abuses? How are they talking about religious freedom? And how are they talking about it within the context of their faith? And a lot of the time, what I was seeing was a, first of all, an emphasis on this sort of, on Genesis, right? The core idea of human dignity and the, you know, if everybody's made in the image of God, then everybody is, you know, entitled to certain key dignity and, and, and therefore rights. And the idea that those rights are coming from God and not from the state meant that it was the real priority is to make sure that you can have that, that freedom of religion because the state shouldn't be abridging that in any way. And then there's also, of course, again, the emphasis on, on going out into the world and, and spreading the word, right? That's another sort of key piece that I saw come up again and again and again in conversation with this idea about human dignity and people being made in the image of God. So that there, the two ideas really seemed fused together in much of the, the what I was reading, but also in congressional testimony about this. A lot of the concerns that people had was that people were not able to, to spread the word and therefore they were having this fundamental right shut down by, this, by certain states and that this was a problem. And conversely, that even in states that maybe were not doing well on other human rights measures, but were allowing people to practice their faith in at least in this particular faith freely, there was a chance that they would improve in other areas as more people converted, essentially. That religious freedom could be a stepping stone to other types of freedoms. It was sort of the yeah, the, the sort of primary right that needed to be correct for other ones to follow. 
It strikes me too that that the way evangelicals are thinking about this concept of human rights is very much on the individual. That it's sort of each individual has this right. Because there are other conceptions of religious freedom that could be sort of communal that wouldn't be as concerned about sort of individuals having a certain right. They'd be about a certain community having a, a certain right. I think that really reflects something about evangelical religious beliefs more generally. It is an individual personal relationship with Jesus that really matters on some level. So again, as somebody who was raised Catholic, that's it's just not that same experience for me. And so, but that seemed to be something that really mattered in what I was reading and, and it needed to be a personal individual experience. Th this idea, and this came up even, and I, I, we may talk about some specific cases that I studied later, but one of the things that I saw a lot with repressive authoritarian leaders who also embraced this particular ethos and who some of them were evangelical, they often reflected on how they wanted to change individual hearts. And that that was the way to make progress in human rights was to change individual hearts, which is really, again, I think a very evangelical way to frame it, that it's very personal and not not structural. <laughs> well, it's also interesting, too, and I, another historian, Melanie McAllister, has, has dived into some of this, too. But it also makes sense then why sort of stories of individuals who have or who are having their rights violated are so powerful uh, for the community as well. So there's often sort of, there's stories of, of and you go into some of this too. There are there are certain people held up in repress in, in countries where there isn't uh, sufficient religious freedom, as in individuals held up as sort of um, these these powerful stories that that evangelicals can rally around, and that gets to that same sort of understanding of the individual's connection with God and, and the value of the individual. And also, I think one of the things that that Melanie McAllister really does well is she talks about how that with those individual stories, evangelicals in the U.S. can personally identify with the uh, an evangelical repressed somewhere like, say, the Soviet Union. You can feel a kind of personal connection to that person. And then almost the persecution that they are facing, you can almost kind of take it on to yourself where you feel like, well, if a, if somebody is being persecuted there, we're all persecuted. Right. And so it becomes a kind of a culture of I, you know, a victim identification in a way, which she gets into really nicely in the book. And I think that is also a way to rally political mobilization and political organizing. It's something most times when historians are looking at evangelicals, the the topic of ecclesiology or the sort of the, the, the definition of the church is not often at the top of the list of things uh, people are interested in. But this question of sort of identification across space is, is really also a question of who is it, who is the body of Christ? And how much should we be identifying with people who are in a different culture, speak a different language, maybe even follow a much different version of Christianity? But sort of there is this tie. And so it's an interesting way because most evangelicals don't have a strong articulation of an ecclesiology. It's often local church-based or maybe a denomination or maybe a parachurch group. But there are these interesting examples where there's something sort of unspoken or underneath the surface where there really is a strong identification across cultural and other lines and geographic lines as well. Yeah, and we start to see, I think, a, a real interest in forging closer connections in the 1970s, right? People like Billy Graham really eager to, first of all, fulfill that, that biblical mission to evangelize, but they're also eager to bring closer connections to the church in the world, right? To Between the U.S. and churches in Africa and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. So we're already touching on sort of a lot of the themes in the first half of your book. 
really setting up this context of the 1970s and which is really where the story starts in your book. And there's just lots of changes happening in the world in that decade. And uh, some of them are local to the U.S. Some of them, this isn't different. There are also global trends happening that are affecting the U.S. in particular ways. A few you identify uh, in the first half of your book include decolonization around the globe, the ongoing Cold War and the way that's shaping people's attitudes toward other parts of the world. Uh, and you also have a whole chapter on communication and the, the sort of revolution in communication that's happening in the 1970s and 1980s as well. So at one point you call these sort of overlapping layers of the context that uh, evangelical human rights activism is emerging out of. I mean, there's a lot there. Could you just tell us a bit about how, you, how you're thinking about that context in the 70s that really gives rise to uh, this movement that you're tracing? Yeah, so... As you said, there's just so much happening here. There is the reality that throughout the world, many countries that had previously been under the thumb of colonial powers are pushing for independence, gaining independence. But that is happening within this larger context of the Cold War, where the U.S. and the Soviet Union are battling for hearts and minds, right, to use a, a somewhat tired phrase. They are battling for influence in those newly independent countries, and they're trying to win them over. Uh, and some of that is ideological, and some of it is through literal investment, right, to try to get, you know, provide development aid and that sort of thing. As this is unfolding, there's also a big change happening for Christians and Christian missionary work which is that with decolonization, there is a very large critique of the role that Christian missionaries had played in the long sweep of history in terms of coming into countries. Um, and in, in a sense, and this is another um, phrase that's been used a lot, acting as a handmaiden of empire, right? Bringing in their particular religious faith and in some cases, forcibly converting people to Christianity or, or not, or acting just in a, in a more sort of powerfully in terms of their culture, but coming in, uh, changing things about the country and facilitating um, the expansion of empire or the, or the power of the colonial state. And so there's a critique about missionary work that's happening. And it's happening both from people on the ground in those countries who had been colonized, but it's also happening in academic circles and it's happening among leaders in especially mainline churches who are growing increasingly uncomfortable with the reality that, that their churches have participated in this. And so what we start to see is that some of those mainline churches begin to pull out. They want to reorient their missionary work. Um, this comes up in some big meetings that happen with the World Council of Churches, where people start to say, oh, we really should change this model. So it's not us kind of going in as cultural imperialists and trying to say that our Western Christian culture is the way to go and we need to change people. Maybe we should just be doing medical missions or, or whatever. But that's not what evangelicals necessarily believe, although they are also listening to these critiques of colonialism and they are certainly, they're certainly concerned or, or sort of hearing about this. They are much more worried that if the church in a broad sense pulls out of missionary work, if it stops doing missionary work, then there is no way that they will achieve their goal of bringing the gospel to the entire world, because so much of the world's population growth in the 60s and 70s is not uh, in Europe or the United States. It's in what we think of as the global South, right? Africa, Latin America, Asia, the Middle East. And so there's a fear that if, if everybody pulls out of this missionary work, um, there's going to be, and this is the phrase I often say, there's 2 billion souls who have not heard the word, and they are going to be lost. And again, if your belief is that there is no 
greater chance for freedom than salvation through Christ. And if you don't have that, you are doomed for eternity. Boy, it's really an urgent mission to, to do the, to go and to, and to reach those folks. And so as mainline churches start to, to shift their approach to missionary work, evangelicals are raring to go, to go in and kind of fill the, fill the breach, right? They are kind of aware though, that there are also evangelical Christians that already exist in some of those countries in the global South. Uh, and many of those evangelicals uh, are not necessarily keen to have U.S. and European evangelicals come in and kind of tell them what to do. So the conversation about decolonization and about imperialism is something that's going to also animate discussions among evangelicals as they start to get together more and more to talk about how they can evangelize the world. And so there's all these interesting conflicts and debates uh, that emerge, but evangelicals are really eager to do more of this missionary work. One of the problems they encounter, though, is that there are countries like China and the Soviet Union um, and countries in the Middle East that they're not hospitable to missionary work. They're, you're either literally not allowed to go in and evangelize or it's just incredibly dangerous. And so evangelicals are going to start to marshal new technology to try to reach people in new ways. And sometimes that's through really powerful radio transmissions, tape ministries where you're, you can like smuggle in some, some audio tapes and people can pass them around and then eventually satellite TV as well. And later the internet. And so there's this, they're really early adopters of most technology because it is a, a method for spreading the word in countries that are seen as um, hostile to their efforts. So all of this stuff is happening in the seventies. It is very, very, um, it's quite a time. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And it's interesting too, on, on the, on the communications technology front, there's a um, there might be an assumption from from the outside that that's sort of religious people using sort of secular technology or something to advance their religious interests. But you really show how a lot of these, you know, television broadcasters or radio pastors, they see like religious significance in the technology itself. They either see sort of a spiritual significance, a prophetic significance um, to the actual technology that they're using to spread the word. Yes, absolutely. I think one of my very favorite stories from, there's this book, The Electric Church, that's written by the president of the National Religious Broadcasters. And I think the, the most sort of remarkable and fascinating part of it comes toward the end when he talks about the potential of communication satellites. And he actually sees a prophetic role for them. He, he thinks, and he says, what if satellites are the angel of revelation that will, brought, in this case, broadcast the word to everybody. And he actually proposes that they should, in fact, get their own satellites, angel one, and then later angel two. Uh, this is his proposal. This doesn't come to pass. But he proposes that we should actually have them call them this to do this work that was prophesied in revelation, because clearly that's what this is. God is sending us this tool. It's remarkable. This is this fascinating. And I actually, I try in my own writing, you know, it's the, you read these books and sometimes they have these very long block quotes. And I generally don't like to use too many of those because people don't read them. But boy, I had to use the whole thing from the book because it's, it's just, it shows so clearly the way in which theology or these sort of ideas about what the Bible is saying are intersecting and, and intermingling with this new technology that's emerging. It's really incredible. Right. Yeah. And that, that, that goes to sort of the way, the inherited ways evangelicals and Pentecostals have interpreted the Bible or in particular, you know, prophecy 
um, to be able to even make those connections with modern technology and say, ah, this is the, you know, this is the fulfillment of that. It's just a really interesting tradition there. And so I, I just, I found that super fascinating. And again, it's coming from somebody who really is important, right? The president of the National Religious Broadcasters, like he's really thinking about this stuff. He's really clued into the whole community. Yeah. So, okay. So getting to the National Religious Broadcasters, I think by the time we get to the end of the 70s and into the 80s, this congealing, this forming evangelical perspective on a lot of these issues. And it's not just a perspective. It's also rooted in some organizations and some actual sort of political heft um, as, as they're thinking about how do we actually sort of shape policy. So can you just narrate for us sort of how we get to the point where in the second half of the book, we get to explore some different case studies, but how we get to the point where there's sort of a, an evangelical lobby or a, a sort of Christian perspective, an evangelical perspective on human rights. So what I, what I talk about in the book, all of this is uh, going or sort of evolving alongside another big trend for evangelicals in U.S. politics, which is the rise of the religious right. So in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, what we're starting to see is that there are evangelical groups who are coalescing around certain key political issues. Um, Roe versus Wade is one, but there's also um, concern about prayer in school and tax credits for whether schools, religious schools that segregate are should be allowed to get um, tax exemptions, right? So all of these are issues that start to mobilize a religious right. And so by the end of the 70s, we have these big organizations like the Moral Majority and Focus on Family. And they are very powerful in terms of, you know, mobilizing conservative Christians, not just evangelicals, but conservative Christians more broadly to vote on specific issues and to support specific candidates. And they have a huge ecosystem of, you know, direct mail and everything to help catalyze that. So that's happening. So there is this growing political power of more conservative Christians, which means that conservative Christians are starting to get elected to Congress in greater numbers, people who, who specifically identify as members of this religious right. So you have people who are very receptive to that kind of messaging. And that is going to be very important for people who are also evangelical and probably concerned about those issues, but are also really focused on the foreign policy side and very eager to promote U.S. policies, foreign policies that will allow them to more easily go out and spread the gospel so that they can achieve their, their goals. And so what we start to see is that we have groups like the National Association of Evangelicals who are starting to send folks in to testify, but also smaller organizations like the Slavic Gospel Association in Wheaton, Illinois, at Wheaton College, who are concerned about religious persecution in the Soviet Union. And these are smaller groups, especially that in the 1970s, the mid-1970s, they noticed something that was happening in Congress, which was that there was a tremendous amount of sympathy and concern for Jewish people in the Soviet Union who were facing serious persecution. They were not allowed to emigrate. They couldn't really freely practice their faith. They were being discriminated against in various ways. And in the US Congress, there was a move from a few different leaders to impose sanctions on the Soviet Union to punish it for the way it was treating uh, its Jewish citizens. All of this was framed with human rights language and evangelical Christians were watching and saying, huh, this is very effective because they were able to actually pass some amendments to an important trade act that did impose these um, new requirements that if the United States was going to have a trading relationship with the country, that country needed to be um, protecting its citizens' rights to emigrate and to do other things. And evangelical Christians watched the success that Jewish interest groups had achieved. And they said, 
Christians are being persecuted in the Soviet Union. Why aren't we doing this? We need to be doing the same thing. And so they start to. And so what we start to see by the mid-70s and onward is a lot more evangelicals going to Congress to testify. And some of them are part of the Slavic Gospel Association. Some of them are related to other new organizations that have emerged around the religious freedom or freedom for, for Christians. And they go to Congress and they talk about the kind of abuses that Christians are facing in the Soviet Union or elsewhere. And they start to have a real voice. You know, they, there's all sorts of stories that they share about, I mean, awful treatment that people are for psychiatric treatment, people who can't teach their own children their religious faith, people who are beaten or put into prison camps, officials seizing shipments of Bibles and using the paper of the Bibles for toilet paper. I mean, like all of these really salacious stories, which are not, I mean, they're not made up, right? These are things that are happening, but they really capture the attention of Congress. And so what we start to see is that, first of all, there gets to be more pressure placed on countries like the Soviet Union who are doing these things, right? So there's there's overt pressure in the form of, of sort of congressional sanctions or efforts to um, withhold normal trade relations. There's also stuff that starts to happen behind the scenes because all these Christians are writing letters to the president and the State Department about specific individual religious prisoners. So you start to see advocacy on, on that. So it, it gets bigger and bigger. Um, and, uh, you know, there are some famous cases, of course, like the Siberian Seven, who took refuge in the U.S. embassy in the Soviet Union. And, and there's a huge amount of back channel sort of diplomatic conversation about what to do about them. And the reason that any of this is coming up from people high up in the State Department who generally not only didn't necessarily care so much about this, but weren't necessarily on board with the human rights stuff either, they have to care because they're getting a ton of mail about it. People are really fired up and it becomes a very effective way to shape U.S. foreign policy. Like this is what's on the table and in the conversations between the U.S. ambassador and the Soviet ambassador. That's powerful and important. Right. And so it's this type of grassroots um, activism that um, actually is felt by the sort of elite levels of policymaking. In a way that th there's definitely points in, in American history where that's the case, there's also points where the, the elite are sort of isolated or insulated from a lot of that, that pressure. But that is often contingent on who's in the grassroots and, and are they organized uh, and able to sort of make implicit threats about the next election and who's going to get elected <laughs> and stuff like that. And as you can imagine, as the religious right is growing more powerful alongside this, it becomes very clear that they might be able to steer elections particular ways as they do by the 1980s. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So so getting to the 80s, what you do in the second half of the book is you actually have three different hotspots or um, examples of where evangelicals are really deeply involved in what's happening in different parts of the world around this religious liberty focused conception of human rights activism. So could you just give us a sense of those three hotspots and, and even sort of why did you pick those three? Sure. Yeah. So I have a chapter that looks at U.S. activism around religious freedom in the Soviet Union, which we, we just talked about a little bit. That That's pretty, um, first of all, interesting because there, is, there are some successes there that evangelicals have where they're really sort of clearly um, shaping policy in particular ways to push the United States to put new pressures on the Soviet Union. And then as the Soviet Union starts to collapse, evangelicals play a really interesting role in shaping civil society in a post-Soviet Russia. So that's one case study. I also have a case study in Guatemala, which is one that I find particularly fascinating because this was a situation where you have a dictator who comes to power who is an evangelical Christian and a member uh, of a church 
he had been converted to a, a church from the United States that had sent missionaries down. So he is very much tied into the network of US evangelicals, but he is also a ruthless dictator and he engages in genocide against the Mayan as he is saying uh, that he is going to promote human rights in his country. And evangelicals really kind of flock to his aid, framing his strong anti-communism as evidence that he is going to be promoting a system that would be more open to evangelism. Because in the Soviet Union, atheistic communism, this is the sort of messaging that we get, atheistic communism means that people can't practice their religious faith, which means anti-communist states are going to allow for more religious freedom. And then the belief was eventually these other rights. And evangelicals there are really instrumental in um, pushing for aid to this leader's regime. This is um, General Efrain Riosmont. They, they push for aid to his regime. They run into a lot of trouble in Congress about this. There's resistance from liberal members of Congress who are saying, nope, there's all sorts of human rights abuses. We're not sending aid. And so even though they're not as um, successful, they actually are able to kind of go around Congress and arrange for military material to be sent to this leader bought through Canada, funneled through Israel and all of the stuff. It's quite a complex story. And they're also down on the ground staffing some strategic hamlets. Uh, so they're, they're really involved in an interesting way and they don't exactly get what they want. And it is a really fraught situation, but they're there and they're, they're, they matter in that foreign policy. And then the final case study that I have is on uh, US relations with apartheid South Africa. And that's another really challenging one because evangelicals recognize in the case of South Africa that the system of apartheid is a brutal system, but it's also one that is making it hard for them to achieve their objective of evangelism because especially Black South Africans, but also South Africans uh, um, who are Indian or from other races, because they could not, they, first of all, many, in many cases, they could not worship together, but also there was a sense that, well, the missionaries are representatives of the white, the white church and therefore they are supporters of apartheid. We're not going to really listen to them. And so they wanted to see a kind of uh, gradual end to apartheid to mitigate that. But they don't want justice or a quick end to it because they're very worried. Evangelicals are very worried, conservative ones anyway, that if apartheid ends too quickly or with too much violence, it will invite the African National Congress in, which they viewed as a Marxist communist force and might therefore lead to an erosion of Christianity in South Africa than the most Christian nation on the continent. And so they end up being alarmingly gradualists on apartheid in South Africa, which of course from our, you know, from, from an outside perspective is very deeply problematic. And they lead an effort in Congress to uh, resist efforts from liberal members of Congress to impose sanctions on South Africa or to divest from South Africa. And so they become very useful to the Reagan administration, which is also resisting those efforts. Uh, but it's it's complicated. And so they're they're not as successful in that area. Although later what we see is that some evangelicals from South Africa do come to repent their gradualism and engage in that reconciliation project. You do a great job in each of the chapters to show sort of the the multiple angles evangelicals are coming to these issues from. And of course, we're, we're, when we, we're even using the term evangelicals right now, it's often a shorthand for these organized evangelical groups that do claim to represent a broader swath of, 
of the evangelical world. But if you get down into the, the weeds of any of these evangelical communities, there's usually differences of opinion on all of these things, right? Like if you were to pull a church or, or, or a community center or something, there'd be a bunch of different views on apartheid. Uh, even if the evangelical lobby is sort of hitting a certain uh, position over and over again for, for political reasons. Absolutely. And I mean, I think that's one of the key arguments of the book, too, is that evangelicals are not monolithic. We see huge differences on the ground. So uh, uh, evangelicals in South Africa, South African evangelicals themselves have a wide range of views that reflect their theological beliefs as well as their political beliefs. Evangelicals in the U.S. have a wide range of views. It's it's quite diverse, and yet still they're they're able to mobilize around certain ideas in interesting ways. So, and then these these case studies are all important in terms of thinking about U.S. foreign policy priorities. So, I mean, I picked these in part because these are hot spots in the world for the Cold War in a in the Reagan era. He's very very engaged with the issue of anti-communism in Southern Africa, and clearly engaged in a number of covert operations to support authoritarian leaders in, in Central America. That's a, just enormously important in terms of our study of foreign policy in the Reagan era. And, you know, can't talk about the Cold War without talking about Soviet Union and, and Eastern Europe. So that's in there too. It tries to get at those big, those big hotspots. Right. And I think um, to generalize about all three, I think you also show sort of the limits or even the, 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 the dark side, or, or at least the blind sides of this conception of human rights. If you could just generalize about sort of what are the limitations that you saw as a historian in this conception of, of human rights that becomes the sort of dominant evangelical uh, version of it. What, what are the limits of that uh, moral uh, horizon or that concept? Absolutely. And I think I just, if I could just take, take a step back too, I, I would like to note that this is significant because this view has not disappeared. We saw from folks like um, Mike Pompeo, who was Secretary of State under the previous president, they set up a review of what U.S. foreign policy and human rights policy should be, and they prioritized religious freedom as their core human right. So this this is not a something that only was to do with the 70s, 80s, and 90s. This is a kind of consistent idea that we're seeing, and so it, it does matter. Of course, one of the most um, sort of striking drawbacks or, or challenges or blind spots is that if in prioritizing religious freedom above all other rights, you can potentially send the message that other rights don't matter as much, that you've created a hierarchy of rights, and that therefore it is okay, you kind of give a green light to unsavory characters, unsavory leaders and regimes in other countries to engage in really horrific abuses. If you're prioritizing um, the ability of people to evangelize or to to practice their faith, but you are not protecting people from, uh, you know, horrific physical abuse or, again, kidnapping, disappearances and killing, you know, anybody on the outside who's who's maybe not an evangelical looking at that is going to say, how can you see yourself being a promoter of human rights when you are not speaking out against people who are literally torturing and killing people or who are, you know, just jailing people kind of willy nilly or who aren't, you know, who are sort of starving people out. And so there's all these other rights that are also very important. And so it can seem callous. Uh, it can seem as though you're using human rights language in an, in an instrumental or cynical way and that, that it's not a real sort of full vision for human rights. And I think that's the, the potential blind spot. 
one needs to be, I think, conscious of the ways in which human rights can mean a lot of different things. And their religious freedom is clearly a critical piece of that. People should be able to practice their faith, but it can't be the only right that is protected or you are going to see these real abuses. And it can it can blind you to, I think, really problematic leadership. And, and not, again, in the case of South Africa, I think is a good one because you have folks who are more concerned with peace, with, with a peaceful transition than with justice. And I think in a case like that, especially as we think broadly, even in our own country about race relations, justice really matters and change really matters. And if you are on the side of peace and gradualism, it doesn't sound like you really care about making the fundamental changes that need to be made uh, in order to ensure that everybody has indeed equal rights or human rights. It strikes me too that, you know, that there's a division in American Protestantism through the 20th century where you have sort of social justice on one side and evangelism on the other. And you, you sort of, that, that's the typical way you sort of have the, the liberal Protestants interested in the social gospel and, and justice and maybe de-emphasizing evangelization. And you have the fundamentalists and later the evangelicals who have sort of the flip concern. And I mean, one way to critique that, at least from within the sort of Protestant world, is to say that each side is, that, that's half of the, the, the equation there. And, and a sort of narrow understanding of what the gospel is or what, or what you're called to do as a Christian leads to these, um, and then also the, the, the desire to become part of the political game or the, the political world. I mean, there's always going to be messy trade-offs in, in politics as well, but those two things combined sort of lead to situations where, well, history will bear it out, but, but where um, you can look back and see a lot of shortcomings or a lot of sort of uh, failed leadership or at least um, spotty leadership um, on these issues. And what I think is really interesting and, and what I get into a bit uh, in the early chapters of the book is that evangelical Christians from Latin America are deeply attuned to that. And they actually are really pushing their, their Western counterparts to not think about the mission of the church as either social justice or evangelism, but as both. And they make the case, um, um, Cyrene Pidia, one in particular, a theologian in particular who made this case, he argued that if you couldn't break man's slavery in the world, there was no way you could effectively evangelize. In other words, you have to take care of, you have to make sure not only are people not being murdered and or tortured, but that they have enough to eat, that you can't be receptive to the gospel if you're starving or don't have a home, right? So that that is a much broader conception of human rights that would open you up to say like, well, you need to have full human rights for people to be able to be saved so that you can't have this hierarchy of rights. And so they're actually, there's a group of evangelicals in conversation with U.S. evangelicals and European evangelicals saying, well, hold on, <laughs> we, we disagree. And ultimately, you know, there some some people are listening to them, but there's a real push on the side of uh, conservative evangelicals in the United States to just really pursue the evangelism. They see that, again, as the primary function, exactly what you're saying, that there is this dichotomy, like one is more important than the other, and they're on the evangelism side. Right. And I just think of like the work of David Swartz um, in his book, Facing West, which came out um, a couple of years ago now, that's looking at that sort of global conversation and how there really is that, that history of American Protestantism doesn't necessarily, it, it certainly doesn't translate all across the globe. And there's, there's other constellations and configurations that uh, don't have those same dichotomies in them. 
And David Kirkpatrick's work as well really gets us in the Latin American context. He's written extensively about Padilla, really important work there. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. Thanks for mentioning that. Thanks for walking through a, a lot of the book there. I, I wanted to raise just a final question about the book before going to some uh, some ending questions about sort of application uh, of, of your scholarship. But um, I think many listeners and and even many, many Christians would associate evangelical political activism with sort of culture wars types issues. And, and that's a crude characterization, but there are certain issues like abortion, like same-sex marriage, that usually get most of the airtime when talking about evangelical activism. And those are usually considered sort of domestic politics issues. Though there is interesting work done about how evangelicals are actually involved in these types of issues across the globe as well. But those are often seen as like American domestic political issues. And what you've really focused on are foreign policy issues. And so just wanted to hear your thoughts on like, how do you see the weight there on, on evangelical activism? Like is, is one of the things you're trying to do is trying to show that there's sort of an equivalency um, between domestic and foreign? Or, or how would you think about that as we're trying to sort of characterize this period of evangelical political activity? I think the domestic piece is very important. It's especially important as we think about the 70s and our current times. It's more that I want to say it's not the only thing that's happening here. This is a much more complex um, slate of concerns that evangelicals have. The reality is, if, if we sort of think about most Americans, if they're interested in politics or issues at all, they tend to be more focused on domestic issues than on foreign policy issues. So already, if we think about people really motivated in foreign policy, it's generally a fairly small group of any larger interest group. So I, I do think, you know, the, the fact that there's a lot of work and research into, you know, evangelical domestic politics and engagement is it, that makes sense, right? Because that is, I think, a, a big story. But <laughs> this other piece also really matters. And I actually think it matters more for evangelicals than for perhaps some other types of groups, because they have such an internationalist focus baked in because of their religious commitment to evangelizing and missionary work. And so they are already much more outward looking than say, you know, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to like, then, then a kind of domestic, any other kind of domestic interest group might potentially be, they have a natural sort of interest in, in foreign, uh, foreign affairs, we'll say. And so I, I think adding that story is important. I've, I know that a lot of times when people read about or think about evangelicals and foreign policy, they might go more to the topic of your work, which is evangelical relationships with Israel and in what that looks like, because that's often what's in the news. And so the other thing I was eager to do is to say, like, th certainly that's important. And thank goodness for your recent book, because it really, um, it really adds a lot of nuance to that story, which is often uh, oversimplified. But there's so much more than that, right, that there's this much bigger story. And it's not also it's not just a story of anti-communism. There's a real sort of biblical basis to this activism that is more than anti-communism. It's more than about Israel. It really is about thinking about what the U.S. role in the world should be in terms of um, guaranteeing, guaranteeing their right to fulfill their religious mission. More recently, I think we've seen a blending of those, of those interests. So, for example, I didn't see so much of this in my uh, research into the 70s, 80s, and 90s, but, uh, but when we think about like the early 2000s, there's a lot more concern about abortion access globally. So the global gag rule and that sort of thing. 
again, that's not something that really came up anywhere in my research in the earlier period. So clearly, by the time we get to the 2000s, there's been a, more of a merger between the, the evangelicals interested in foreign and domestic policy in terms of their priorities. But this hasn't gone away, this interest in religious liberty as a goal, right? That is clearly still very much with us. Both, And, and that's another one that sort of um, has bridges between domestic and foreign, because religious liberty is an issue that's very hot domestically uh, as well, um, uh, particularly uh, in the last probably 10 years. But that's one where you can find evangelicals who are very focused on religious liberty abroad and others who are very focused on religious liberty at home. And interesting in how that gets defined in different ways, depending on what we're talking about. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I'd like to just end here with a couple questions um, about how you hope your work um, is read and, and used. Um, but, but the first one is a little broader, and that's just to acknowledge that your work is part of a broader scholarly effort to understand the role of religion and politics uh, in modern America, uh, both domestic and foreign. So beyond sort of that conversation among scholars, um, what's your like, bigger hope for that, um, what some people call a religious turn in fields that, in, in a field like U.S. foreign relations that often... I mean, you can overplay this, but often sort of ignored religion as a, a sort of core reason why anything happened. There's a lot of people now saying, no, actually, religion is implicated in all of the things uh, that happened. What do you hope sort of the broader uh, shift is in the way people understand the world through this type of work? So a, a few things. I think one of the first things that I'm hoping that people will take away is that we, we sometimes think of foreign policy as something that is really like the cold realism that it's, you know, it's people at the top making decisions that purely reflect power realities or like national security concerns. And so I think by looking at factors like religion, we can actually get a much better understanding of the ways that seemingly more amorphous forces like culture or ID ideas or ideology can actually, and indeed have actually shaped how policymakers even think about questions of power or national security, that you can't actually disentangle those things. There isn't, there isn't necessarily a separation. The, the parameters of what we understand as appropriate behavior in the international sphere are, are governed in, in ways by our ideological beliefs or our worldviews. And for many policymakers, those are shaped by their religious faith, evangelical or otherwise. The other thing that I hope is a, a takeaway that, that I think is important is the power of grassroots activism. And I think whether whether you sort of would um, sort of read my book and be like <laughs> sort of excited by what evangelicals were up to or or not. Right. And I think I wrote the book in such a way that you can kind of draw your conclusions from it, depending on your own perspective. That, that was a, a, a hope of mine. But like you can't ignore the power of grassroots activism. Again, we sometimes think of these of politics or of foreign policy, especially as something that the individual cannot affect. But that's not necessarily true. You, you coming together in a group can make a big difference in terms of foreign policy or politics. So I think it's a hopeful discussion or idea about motivated interest groups in democracies. Uh, if most people maybe don't care or aren't that enthused, but you have one really vocal and engaged small group and you're a part of it, you actually can change. It's not always the outcome that you would hope for, right? Evangelicals in my book do not get everything they want, regardless of who's in power, but they're at the table and they're they're helping shape the direction. And again, whether you think that was a good thing or a bad thing or or whatever, the, the takeaway for me is that like studying the religious turn in foreign policy shows us the way that individuals shape foreign policy, that it's not all structure and institutions. 
Right. Yeah. First of all, say, I think you do really, the, the tone of the book is very much, uh, you, you don't exactly know where you're coming from. And I'm sure that's where you were, you were trying to land it. And I also, I remember in, in the round table that I got to review your book in, uh, one of our colleagues, John Wilsey said, you, you got evangelicals. Um, and I, I'd agree with that too. So, um, uh, that's just a testament to, to, to your writing. And, and then the other comment on, on the grassroots is, is I think it's also, this is something I recognized in my work too. It's not just grassroots activism. It's like long-term grassroots activism. It's not, it's people, you know, people who have a very long vision of what they want to see get done. And they're willing to work for a decade or more without much to show for it. Um, and then as a historian, you can see how that built a certain structure or a certain momentum that then it sort of becomes obvious. It seems like, it, you know, the hindsight seems like, oh, that was an obvious development. But at the time, you can just tell these people are sort of just really believing in something and toiling away at it, um, sometimes in obscurity, but for years before it actually comes to any type of, of fruition um, for what they're trying to get done. Yeah, it's maybe five people working together on a newsletter. And, and only later do they start to hook into this larger network that's evolving because there's all of these other people who are doing these small works as well. And yes, I, I think the thing I always tell my student is the students is there's nothing inevitable in history. Everything is contingent. No, you really do matter. You really can be part of something that can make a difference. And I think it's a hopeful message and I think it's a very democratic message. Okay, last question, and this is for the audience that tends to listen to us, the Upper House audience, the Upwards podcast audience, predominantly Christian. Do you have any particular ways you hope Christians will read your book uh, or understand sort of your broader uh, engagement um, on these topics? Yeah, I think one thing I'm hoping is just to remind people of how, again, kind of what a diverse group of people we're talking about, that religious groups, again, they're not monolithic, that, that we're thinking about many, many different individuals operating. And so there's all sorts of different perspectives at play. Um, and so I think you can see, first of all, the, the way in which it is a, a diverse collective of people working together. But then also in terms of the message to take away is that I, I think it's really important, and this goes for everybody, we can come into activism around certain issues from the very best of intentions, right, and the very best of beliefs. But it's really important to be self-critical and to look at what you're, who you're engaging with and the way that you're engaging with them with, I think, as clear an, an eye as you can. Because if there's anything that I saw from the, from the research that I did, you know, I think people were true believers and they really believed they were doing the right thing. But boy, sometimes they were uh, on the side of some very unsavory characters doing really awful things to people, right? And so, you know, be critical thinkers, right? Good intentions are, are not always enough. That's a suitably uh, Augustinian point to end our conversation on. So thank you, Lauren, for your book, for your work, and for this conversation. Thank you so much, Dan. It was wonderful to get to talk with you, and I really appreciate it. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Andy Johnson, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.